in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles this morning. And we have been working our way through this book. And now we're in the first of three chapters that records the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And we've had a couple of weeks interruption. One was my health. The other was our missions emphasis with the Herbsters and their send-off. And so we've been a couple weeks outside of this text. But when we were here, uh, we gave our attention to verses 33 through 37. And that was really kind of almost an introductory message to come back to the text and look at it in some detail. And so we're going to jump right back in this morning. And I want to encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 33. And we'll read down through verse 37 here in Matthew 5. Verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And I mentioned last time, there are some expressions here, there are some concepts that uh, we aren't as familiar with, and Lord willing, we're going to explore those in a way today that will help us really get a better handle on it. But even without looking into all the various expressions, the overriding truth is at least clearly hinted at in verse 33 when when we see the reference to not forswearing. And if you're thinking at all about the Ten Commandments, because he said, remember you've heard it said of old time, if you're thinking all about the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment says, thou shalt not bear what? Thou shalt not bear false witness. We just commonly refer to the ninth commandment as forbidding what? Thou shalt not lie. We typically say the wording is not bear false witness. And and certainly lying is what this is getting um, to the heart of. And so last in our last message, without even going into the twists and turns of the text, we just explored some truths regarding lying. And you may recall that the first truth that we noted is that lying is actually a natural tendency of the depraved sinful nature that we are born with. Psalm 58 and verse 3 says, The wicked are strange from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Sometimes babies, when they cry, they really are hungry. Or sometimes there's a problem in the diaper. Or sometimes there's some other need but sometimes they make cries that sound exactly like they really need something and it's all just self-centered about me some of those cries are lies from the beginning and the bible says so Uh, unfortunately not only is that truth clear But a second truth about lying is that it is so prevalent in our culture that it has actually become one of our cultural traits. Uh, Several years back, I mentioned in that message, Child Magazine suggested that lying 
is actually so normal that a child's first few lies should be seen as an important development of themselves. Not discouraged, but actually encouraged. The average American, we're told, lies 16 times a day. It really is one of our cultural traits. But while it is natural to sinners and prevalent in our culture, we want to be reminded that lying is a sin that highly provokes God. Proverbs 19.9, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall perish. People do spend eternity in hell for lying. And the Bible says it in multiple occasions. There's nothing more contrary to the person of God than a lie. Deuteronomy 32.4 says that he is a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. There's nothing more in agreement with the nature of the devil than lying. John 8 and verse 44, Jesus referred to him as a liar and the father of it. And one truth that we also considered last time is that lying is actually particularly dangerous for the liar himself. And the reason for that is because lying is often a sin that is committed in an attempt to cover other sin. And this really stands out in the Bible. In the case of Cain, you remember when God asked him, where his brother was, Cain actually lied and said, I don't know. And in that case, that lie was to conceal his murder. In the case of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac, his lying was, and in, uh, on the intent of kind of uh, covering his self-centered intention to rob his brother of the privileges of the firstborn. In Joseph's brother's case, and they're lying to their dad, Jacob, about Joseph being attacked by wild beasts, their, their lying was part of a cover-up for the, the bitterness and the jealousy that was stirring in their hearts. In the case of Saul, you remember that he lied to Samuel, the prophet, when he said, I performed all that the Lord told me about the Amalekites. But his lie was an attempt to cover up partial obedience. In the case of Gehazi, Elisha's servant, his lying was an attempt to cover up his materialism and his greed. In the case of Peter, who lied in the courtyard of the high priest, denying he ever knew Jesus, his lie was just an attempt to cover up his own fear, his own unbelieving fear. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied to a whole church, it was an attempt to cover up their self-seeking praise and yet covetousness operating at the same time together. And unfortunately, I think we all know that many times people lie in attempts to cover up other lies. And then there's another one to cover up that one and it just gets bigger. And, and where lying exists, it always reveals another need that is below the surface. And and lying needs to stop because it's wrong, but we also need to get to the roots of what the lies are sourced in. And brethren, even with this just quick review to get us back into the theme and the text, I do want to say that it is the Lord's mercy for someone to get caught in lying. 
Because if the lying doesn't stop, you really can't help. And with all that, again, just general background from, from Old and New Testaments, what our text gives witness to is the links to which a wicked heart will try to disguise its lying. And we noted earlier that the specific form of lying uh, addressed in the ninth commandment is bearing false witness. You can look again here in verse 33. Um, you can see a reference to oaths there. You can go into verse 34 and see reference to swearing again in verse 36 to swearing. And, and the concepts of oaths and swearing are, are really connected. Okay, this, what the Lord is talking about here is not what we would commonly call swearing today or cussing. Okay, that's not what's under discussion. Whether it would be using God's name in vain or other foul or vulgar expressions, that's not what the Lord's going after right here. And I don't mean by that that any of that's okay, but that's not exactly what he's going after. What he's going after here is the, the whole idea of a sworn testimony. Okay, like in a courtroom setting of our day, when someone would be called to the witness stand and they say something like, you've heard the formula, right? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, um, to, to add an extra layer of sobriety to it and, and, and seriousness, in some courtrooms, most courtrooms still today, this kind of swearing is, is still done with a left hand on the Bible. And it was interesting just rereading some of that this week, that the purpose for it being the left hand is the one closest to the heart. So the thing that is closest to the heart, putting a hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on the Bible. Or in, in some, as I was reading about it again this week, uh, there are still some courtrooms that actually start with, I swear by Almighty God. Or some of them that end with, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me what? So help me God. Right? In some settings, it's not that formal, but someone is making a promise and, or, or maybe agreeing to some kind of a business transaction and they might, they might actually say, look, I'm telling you the truth as God is my witness. I promise. Okay. It's that kind of thing. Or somebody, even in keeping with what we see later in the text, somebody can actually say, look, I'm telling you as sure as my hair is red okay, that this is the truth. Right. So that's the concept. And the ninth commandment in, in Exodus 20 Starts with, again, that more general statement when it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But even in the Old Testament, and the Lord is saying, You've heard it said of old times, so he's going back. Okay? <clears throat> what did the scholars of the Old Testament, what did they teach? What are the people teaching today on the basis of the Old Testament? There's other references that actually um, that, that take this whole concept of involving the Lord in swearing and oath-taking. So Leviticus 19.12, you don't need to turn to any of them, but it says, And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of, of your God. I am the Lord. 
Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 seems to fit the Lord's words when it says, If any man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, don't break your word and so on. So, so whether you're saying, I, I promise in God's name, or, or I swear to God, okay, whether it's either of those, the Old Testament, again, said, <clears throat> you invoke God's name, and you don't follow through, and it's not truthful. You are in big time trouble. And, and the Lord's audience, again, on that mountain, where he's preaching this sermon, they knew the Old Testament emphasized that. And in particular, in God's name, you better be careful. But it's that extra emphasis that in the depravity of the human heart and the flesh, they'd actually seized on. Yeah, if you invoke God's name, then it's really important. But, you know, maybe if God's name isn't involved, nah, maybe we're not quite held up to the same standard then. Since the scripture taught truthfulness is especially important when you vow to God or you use God's name, maybe it's all right to assume that some other forms of not telling the truth are are maybe not quite as bad. And, you know, depending on the context, maybe we don't have to be quite as truthful in some cases as in others. I mean, there's certain people in certain studies, if you lie to them, bad. There's other people, you tell a little fudge and, you know, come, I mean, they don't have to know. And to get a better idea of what, what the Lord was actually even really going after right at this time, turn over to Matthew 23, because I know there's some of this that just continues to be a, a little unusual language for us. You know, you swear by this or that. But Matthew 23, the whole chapter is about the Lord going after the Pharisees and their hypocritical approach to teaching what they don't apply. And, and the, the Jewish Mishnah, and you may not have heard of that expression, but it was an attempt to write down some of the oral, traditional teachings of the Pharisees as they had interpreted the Old Testament law. And when they decided to try to write down what had been passed down just through the, the teaching times, they, they actually had a whole chapter on oaths and another whole chapter on vows. Why would you have to have a whole chapter on oaths and another whole chapter on vows? Why wouldn't it be enough to just say, hey, you give your word, be truthful. <laughs> okay? well, well, here's what happened. They divided them into classifications. They gave examples of valid and invalid oaths. All right? And, and And here's the kind of thing that they would have been familiar with. Look at verse 16. We're going to drop down there. Notice verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides. So he's talking to the religious leadership. You you leaders say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. Meaning, you know, it's not a big deal if you break it. I swear by the temple. Well, okay, that's not that big deal. But look at the next one. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. Now, the gold in the temple, now that's a different deal. And if you swear by that, you better follow through. It sounds so stupid, and it is. Look at verse 17. Ye fools, blind, 
Whether it's greater, the gold, or the temple that sanctified the gold. Whosoever shall swear by the altar, they say it's nothing. But whosoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he's guilty. Ye fools and blind, whether it's greater the gift or the altar that sanctified the gift. Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things that are thereon. Whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Again, you can see the entire discussion is absurd, which is why Jesus pronounced back in verse 16 a woe and said, you are blind guides. I mean, what kind of regard will society as a whole have for the truth when the leadership is actually teaching it how to parse and dissect and create an evasiveness and deceit? And can I say to us as parents, what kind of regard will our children have for the truth if they watch parents fudge and say, well, sometimes it's important and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's okay to lie. just a little lie to somebody that's none of their business. Anybody? Anyway. The leadership was teaching by words and example how to be sophisticated liars and actually almost like pious, righteous liars. That's what Jesus was going after. And you go back to chapter 5 again. And um, verse number 34, <clears throat> against, the, against the backdrop, what does Jesus say? Well, he starts by saying in verse 34, as you can see it, I say unto you, <coughs> swear not at all. And then he goes in, neither by heavens, God's throne, and so on. And, and we're going to see as we look at other scripture that what he's saying there is, look, in everyday life and communication, it shouldn't be necessary you should just be able to say, I commit to that, and you don't have to add all kinds of extravagant formulas to it. That your word is your bond. The formulas are actually a witness to the depravity of our hearts. Then he gives the examples of expressions to throw out. And, and again, you can see, don't, don't swear by... Um, heaven is God's throne. Don't swear by the earth. It's his footstool. Jerusalem, it's the city of the, of the great king. And you can see that he's, he is trying to establish the point that whatever you swear by in this world ultimately has a connection to who? It ultimately has a connection to God. And you can, Romans 11 says that of him and through him and to him are all things. Acts chapter 17, Paul said on Mars Hill, in him we live and move and have our being. So, brethren, you, you can't claim anything in this world as certainty for whatever it is you're, you're swearing testimony about without of necessity falling back on God. And what Jesus is trying to, what Jesus is trying to get to is just look, it doesn't matter if you're in your bedroom. It doesn't matter if you're in a place of business. It doesn't matter in your, in, in your courtroom where you say it on the Bible and all of that. You've never opened your mouth and made any so-called statement of truth where God wasn't the what? Where God wasn't the witness. And that's the ultimate audience. So be entirely truthful 
in all settings, stop looking for a righteous cloak for unrighteous dishonesty because God is the witness and you can't tell a lie without offending God and bring dishonor to God. In verse 37, seems to then just take it another step forward by telling all of us, let your communication be yay, yay, and nay, nay, whatsoever cometh more than the... It, it just, look, as a general rule, you ought to just be straightforward and you ought to be simple in your speech. Like, about anything, if you're trying to come up with a, a way to mask your true feelings because your true feelings are shameful, right? Been the, have you been there? You're ready to just explode. I think we've all been there. We're ready to just explode. And what's about to come out of our mouth, we're thinking, I better not say that. And so we just kind of slightly adjust what we were about to say. Because if I said it the way I really feel about it, I'd be ashamed to say it. So I just kind of slightly adjust it. And, and what the Lord is, uh, and I'm sure that's better. I'm sure that is better than just letting go. But what the Lord is really trying to say is this. He's saying, don't mask it. Deal with what's going on inside and surrender that to the Lord and do business with him on it so that you don't have to catch yourself and mask what you really feel about the whole thing. And, and let the communication just be yay, yay, and nay, nay. Now, that's the thrust of where he's going. I do need to step back and underscore that some people have failed to um, give attention to the rest of the scripture and have run with this teaching into error. And in some ways, actually kind of miss the point when they do. Some have regarded this text as just a dogmatic statement prohibiting being sworn in as a witness in a court of law. So there have been religious groups that have said you should never um, actually be part of any kind of judicial thing that requires you to say, I tell the truth, the whole truth. Or to, with an oath, um, in, in a jury kind of setting. Um, others have gone, gone so far as to say that this forbids pledging allegiance to the flag or to any kind of formal um, statement of an oath to fulfill a responsibility. And that is a, a misapplication that has not taken in the rest of the Scripture. We know that because even in the Old Testament, right? And that's where Jesus started. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, right? Even in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to give you one reference, but Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20 says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, to him thou shalt cleave, and thou shalt swear by his name. So there were occasions, even in that setting, where there would be a more formal oath-taking and bowing. In addition to that, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus responded with to the high priest when the high priest called on him to an oath. And Jesus responded. On several occasions, Paul actually calls God to be his witness. If you're taking notes, you can write down Romans 11, 1, 2 Corinthians 12, 1, 
1 Thessalonians 2, 5. It's not essential, but I'm just saying that there are times where the Apostle Paul himself said, as God is my witness, and he followed up. But what is even the most striking of all is that in Hebrews 6 and verse 16, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God actually condescended. It's really God's condescending to our reluctance to believe someone. We sometimes have difficulty believing God to be entirely truthful because we have been lied to by so many people. And in some cases, we have been lied to by so many leaders in our lives. And sometimes our leaders intentionally lie to us. But sometimes our leaders have assured us of something that they end up not being able to follow through on. And actually, I heard many years ago evangelist John Getch say that he, he regards one of the reasons why so many young people today struggle with assurance of salvation is in part because they have seen parents that said, we will be together till death do us part, and then they don't. And they have seen so many people lie to them in other settings. Okay? And because of all of that, there's a background. All of what I'm saying is God, as it were, condescends to our reluctance to trust anyone fully and completely. And he says in Hebrews 6 and verse number 17 that God himself swore with an oath to men regarding his promise in Christ. That, that men would have difficulty believing that everything God has told us we have in Christ is really ours. And it's as if God has to say, look, I'm God, not man. I swear to you as the God of heaven that you can fully, completely trust everything I've told you is true in Christ. All right, so there are situations in our interactions with men in civil affairs, where I do think something more than a handshake is warranted, right? And the rest of the Bible confirms that. It's not wrong to stand in a courtroom and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's not wrong to give an affidavit. It's not wrong to give a promise that I will fulfill my responsibility. It's not wrong to sign on the dotted line on a contract. But what Jesus was going after, with all that clarification, what Jesus was going after was a supposedly righteous cover for something completely unrighteous. And what Jesus was saying was that, that it should never be necessary for you and I to resort to some kind of a formula as if that's going to guarantee we're really telling the truth. That should not be necessary because your word should be so reliable that nothing more than a mere statement is needed. God is everywhere. Every statement you make is in his presence. Whether, what, whether man believes you or not is not the ultimate issue. Whether your dishonesty or truthfulness is ever really known by man, that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is what does God know about you and what your truthfulness or dishonesty is doing either to honor or dishonor him. Now, 
I didn't do this morning as, as we often do and start with giving attention to the broader context, but I do want to give a simple refresher now. Okay? The teaching that we have just considered, again, is part of the Lord's own preaching. This is his sermon on the mount. And before we ever get here in chapter 5, 6, and 7, back in chapter 4 and verse 17, you may even want to look there, they, they, they announced to us, the scripture announced to us ahead of time what was Jesus' preaching theme. The theme of Jesus' preaching was what? It was repent for what purpose? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was himself the king of the kingdom over which heaven rules. This sermon we're studying is, is an example of the way that he called men and women and boys and girls to repent. This preaching was intended to confront all mankind with the fact that on our own we're sinners. We are unable to make ourselves right with God. We're unable to make ourselves fit to be citizens of Christ's kingdom. And all of us need to come to grips with the fact that not only do we need a forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ alone, but we actually need a supernatural transformation from the inside out if we're going to be fit to be citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom. And what Jesus is proclaiming as he's proclaiming these themes to the people of his day, he's proclaiming that, look, your religious heritage isn't enough. Your adherence to external religious traditions and forms of religion, it isn't enough. Because that's what those people, we're the chosen people. We are the children of God. We are the people that live by the rules. I was born in a Christian home. I've never been in anything but a Christian church. We always go to church on Sunday. I've always been a Christian. And he's saying, look, your heritage, your traditions, your dressing up and showing up at the right time and the right place, that's not sufficient in terms of your standing with God. In fact, chapter 5 and verse 20, getting closer to our text, he said that his audience would have to have a righteousness that surpassed, notice, that exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then remember, he gave illustrations of <clears throat> what kind of righteousness they were missing. They taught in verse 21, as did the Old Testament scriptures, it was unrighteous to what? Yeah, it's unrighteous to murder. But Jesus said in verse 22 that a man could be liable before God for violating the sixth commandment by the passions of the heart and by the words of our mouth. And the Pharisees taught, as you see in verse 27, that it was unrighteous to commit what? To commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. But their so-called purity was only surface level deep. And Jesus in verse 28 says that a man's looking on a woman with lust in his heart makes you liable for the violating the seventh commandment. And furthermore, in verse 31, the Pharisees had made all kinds of provisions for divorce and remarriage, including, as we explored, a legal loophole for covering that. But Jesus said in verse 32 that initiating actions leading to divorce creates an atmosphere of adultery. 
And then we come to our text this morning, and he's declaring there simply is no righteous cloak for any kind of unrighteous dishonesty. There's no spiritual liars. That just doesn't exist. Dishonesty is a violation of the law of God. It's contrary to the very nature of God. It makes a man liable for the judgment of God. So repent and submit to the authority of the king and plead with God not only to forgive you, but to transform you from the inside out. And this covers, again, straightforward contradiction of truth. It also covers evasion of truth. It covers insinuation. It covers misrepresentation of the value of something. It even covers silence when we should speak up because something is getting misrepresented. And for each of those offenses, we're, we're guilty of unrighteousness. We are liable of condemnation. And each and every last one of us, brethren, here's where this all goes. Each and every last one of us needs a Savior outside of ourselves because we're all liars by nature and we're all liars by action. We need a Savior outside of us. And praise the Lord that the gospel message is that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord that the gospel message is also that there is deliverance and transformation in Jesus Christ. True citizens of Christ's kingdom don't live surrendered to lying. That doesn't mean that Christians don't lie. What it does mean is that Christians, as a pattern of life, don't get used to lying. They don't, like, excuse lying. They don't defend lying. They don't live surrendered to lying as if, well, everybody does it, it's not that big a deal. And what happens in the life of a true Christian is that when, the face they, when they face the fact that they've been honest, dishonest in some regard, they're broken about it, even if no other man ever knew. Because the Spirit of God is alive in them, and he's the Spirit of truth, and he witnesses to a Savior who is truth, and to a God who's the God of truth, and the Spirit of God on the inside is doing a work and makes them broken because whether a man ever knew it or not, what they did was contrary to the nature of God. And if men do know it, they are more grieved about the fact that they've dishonored God in the eyes of those men. And they don't try to break off something to save themselves. The compulsion is inside of them because the Spirit of God is inside of them. And he's real, and he's the one compelling them to be entirely truthful. It, it's a compulsion that is a result of being indwelt by the Spirit of truth that, in, that makes real the presence of the Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, brethren, what do we need to do? What? 
we need to be completely truthful. And I'm not trying to just be clever, but we need to be truthful about our dishonesty. I know that it sounds so strange. But we need to, we need to get honest about our dishonesty. That's what David did. David, remember in the penitential psalm, Psalm 51, he said, I was shaven in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And an appropriate response to a message like this is to acknowledge again and, and, and confess, perhaps, maybe, for the first time, just how depraved our fleshly nature is and and how much we are in need of God's forgiveness and his delivering power. And I need my mind renewed that the pathway to, listen, the pathway to all blessing with God is dealing in truth. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. If a whole pattern has just built up to the point that I can even hardly find myself to, 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 to tell God the truth about my dishonesty, it's just so overwhelming. No, let the Spirit of God minister this to you today. If you confess and forsake, you always, always, always receive from the Lord mercy because of Christ. But he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. Repent. Submit to the king. Take forgiveness that is found in Christ and let him transform you on the inside. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?